Chapter 10, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Crossing the Han The CP of the 5th Marines had a holiday atmosphere during the afternoon of 19 September. An already large group of newspaper and magazine correspondents had been reinforced by new arrivals flown in from Tokyo to report the crossing of the Han. The gathering might have been mistaken for a journalistic convention, and Lieutenant Colonel Murray and his regimental planners could scarcely make themselves heard. Finally, it became necessary to request the gentlemen of the press to leave, so that the battalion and company commanders could be summoned for briefing and orders. The CP was located in a basement room of the Kimpo Airfield Administration Building. Coleman lanterns lighted the scene as Murray gave a brief talk to his officers, seated about him on boxes and bedrolls. There had been little time for planning, said the regimental commander, but he was confident of success. General Craig, who made a helicopter reconnaissance of the river and roads leading to Seoul, had recommended the old ferry crossing at Huanju. The river was about 400 yards wide at this site, which was about a mile from the Kaesong Seoul Railroad and main highway to Seoul. Hill 125, as the principal terrain feature, was an isolated knob rising nearly 500 feet and located on the right side of the landing point. To the left was the village of Huanju, bordered by dikes and rice paddies. Regimental planning, said Murray, had been conducted in compliance with 1st Marine Division Operation Order 7-50, issued at 14.30 that afternoon. The 5th Marines was directed to cross the Han in the vicinity of Huangju, seize Hill 125, and advance southeast along the railroad to the high ground dominating the Seoul Highway. The units attached for the operation were the 2nd Battalion, KMC Regiment, the Division Reconnaissance Company, Company A of the 1st Tank Battalion, and Company A of the 56th Amphibian Tractor Battalion, U.S. Army. In addition, the 11th Marines had been directed to give priority and artillery fires to the 5th Marines, while the 1st Engineer Battalion, 1st Shore Party Battalion, and 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion were in direct support. Swimming Team Leads the Way Major William C. Esterline, the S-2 of the 5th Marines, admitted that intelligence as to conditions on the North Bank left much to be desired. He mentioned the reports of an enemy buildup on the other side of the river, and he added that a POW had told of enemy mining activities along the road to Huangju. But in spite of these warning notes, his listeners got the impression that the 5th Marines' planning was based on assumptions of light resistance. Major Charles H. Brush, Jr., the S-3, announced the hastily formulated regimental plan. Houghton's recon company was to lead the advance by sending a swimming team across shortly after nightfall. If the swimmers found the other bank clear of the enemy, they were to signal for the rest of the men to follow in LVTs. Recon company then had the mission of seizing a bridgehead consisting roughly of the triangle formed by hills 95, 125, and 51. After securing these objectives, about 1,500 yards apart, Recon was to defend until Taplet's 3rd Battalion crossed at 0400, with Bones and McMullen's companies in assault and Wildman's in reserve. 
While they passed through recon and attacked towards Seoul, Royce's 2nd Battalion would follow in column two hours later, with Newton's 1st Battalion remaining in reserve and crossing on order as the KMC Battalion protected the regiment's left flank. Tanks and vehicles would be ferried across on 50-ton floating bridge sections. No alternate plan was provided. After the briefing ended at 1700, Houghton and Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence C. Hayes, Jr., Executive Officer of RCT-5, climbed a hill on the south bank and inspected the old ferry crossing and the opposite shore. They saw no enemy activity. Houghton was so optimistic that he asked permission to swim across at dusk, but Murray denied the request. The swimming team consisted of Houghton, 2nd Lieutenant Dana M. Cashin, and 10 enlisted men, accompanied by two Navy Reserve officers, Lieutenant Horace Underwood and Ensign John Siegel. The first went along as an interpreter and the other as public information officer with a tape recorder. General Lowe had asked permission to cross in the LVTs, and when the division commander refused, the 66-year-old observer showed a card signed by President Truman requesting that he be allowed to go anywhere. Even this passport did not swerve General Smith, who decided that Lowe must wait to accompany the reserve battalion. It was a dark and moonless night when the swimmers trudged through the muddy grain fields to the riverbank, carrying two small rubber boats in which to tow the arms and equipment. After checking the current and making allowances for drift, they stripped to their skivvies and slipped into the tepid water shortly after 2000. Only two or three sets of rubber fins were available, but speed was not expected of men using a slow breaststroke to avoid making noise or ripples. These precautions became all the more necessary after a marine shell or aerial bomb set fire to a native house on the far bank and the flames cast a lurid glow over the water. Apparently, the swimmers had not been observed when they scrambled ashore, dripping, about 2040. They encountered two Koreans at the water's edge and overpowered them without much difficulty. Lieutenant Underwood questioned the captives in their native tongue and reported that they were escaping from Seoul. Houghton ordered Lieutenant Cashin and four enlisted men out on patrol duty with a mission of reconnoitering Hill 125 and the Hwanju area. The recon commander remained at the beach, where Gunnery Sergeant Ernest L. DeFazio and the other members of the swimming team guarded the prisoners and prowled the immediate area without encountering enemy. There were so few signs of NKPA activity that Houghton decided even before the return of Cashin's patrol to give the signal for the rest of the company to cross. And it was when the LVTs revved up on the south bank, shattering the night's stillness, that hell broke loose. Marine LVTs grounded in mud. The men in the Amtraks had the problem of advancing five miles by road from Kimpo to an embarkation site they had never seen, crossing a river in the darkness, and seizing three objectives on a basis of a map reconnaissance. First Lieutenant Ralph B. Crossman, executive officer of Recon Company, had received oral orders without an overlay or an opportunity to take notes during the briefing at the 5th Marine CP. His first message by SCR 300 from Houghton came about 2000, warning that the swimming team was taking to the water. This was a signal for the Amtraks to start their road trip. They were on the way when Houghton prematurely radioed the familiar words, The Marines have landed and the situation is well in hand. An hour later the recon commander came in again with a message that no enemy had been encountered. 
He directed his executive officer to cross an LVTs with the three platoons of Recon Company and the attached platoon of Company A, 1st Engineer Battalion, which had a mission of mining roadblocks after the objectives were secured. Crossman acknowledged this message but replied that he could not reach the riverbank for nearly an hour. He had assigned the three objectives to his platoon commanders, directing that they take their orders from Houghton upon reaching the other bank. SCR-300 communications were frequently blurred, however, or blasted off the air altogether by the more powerful radios of the tractors. Thus, the possibilities for confusion were multiplied as the nine Amtraks proceeded in column to the embarkation point, clanking and revving up thunderously in preparation for the crossing. The din was deafening enough to arouse even an enemy who had not shown much fight so far in the zone of RCT-5. Hill 125 suddenly came to life as NKPA bullets whipped the water and mortar shells exploded among the LVTs or along the beach occupied by Houghton's swimmers. Although Cashin's patrol reported no enemy encountered on Hill 125, his men came under fire from that quarter on their return to the beach. One of them, Private First Class Alphonse O. Lede Jr., was reported as missing in action, and it was assumed that communist bullets had cut him down. The embarkation area was so cramped that Crossman had found it necessary to send the LVTs across the river in column, with 1st Lieutenant Francis R. Krantz's 1st Platoon in the lead, followed by 2nd Lieutenant Philip D. Shuttler's 2nd Platoon, and the 3rd commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Charles Puckett. Krantz was to seize Hill 125 while Shuttler attacked Hill 51, and Puckett went up against Hill 95. The three platoons were accompanied by a 4.2-inch mortar forward observer team, two 105mm FO teams from the 11th Marines, and a squad of engineers. Communications on the SCR-300 net were so badly jammed, however, that Houghton and Crossman were figuratively as well as literally in the dark on opposite sides of the river. Crossman's final message from Krantz and Shuttler reported that four of their Amtraks had drifted from the course and grounded in the mud. He ordered both officers to extricate themselves while Puckett, who had not yet left the south bank, covered them with fire. Just then DeFazio radioed that Houghton and his team were planning to swim to the LVTs. This was the last word from the north bank received by Crossman, who lost all radio contact afterwards with anyone except the 5th Marines. At the height of the pandemonium on the north bank, the two Korean prisoners attempted to escape. Both were killed by Marines of the swimming team. Houghton's first thought had been to swim out and guide the LVTs to the north bank, but the enemy had shown such unexpected resistance as to justify the withdrawal of the swimming team. The rubber boats and excess equipment were hidden along the shore and some of the weapons thrown in the river to prevent capture. Then the swimmers started their return trip through the water churned by mortar shells, chiefly marine 4.2-inch bursts falling short. One of these projectiles exploded so near to Houghton as to knock him out momentarily, and he was assisted to a grounded LVT by Corporal James Morgan. The recon commander suffered a sprained back and double vision from the concussion, and two men of the team were slightly wounded. DeFazio led the remaining swimmers to the south bank. There he learned that all the Amtraks had returned, except the four reported grounded. Most of the recon troops on these stranded vehicles had chosen to swim or wade back to the south bank. 
These stragglers were collected on the northern tip of Hill 131 by Captain John F. Paul and Corporal James P. Harney of the Amtraks and shuttled to Kimpo as fast as they returned. DeFazio took care of his casualties, then set out with eight men in search of Houghton. It was a low tide by this time, but wading through the mud proved to be more tiring than swimming. After finding Houghton in a dazed condition on one of the grounded LVTs, the sergeant agreed with Cranes and Shuttler that the approach of dawn made it necessary to abandon the two Amtraks which were still stuck. They returned on the two that the officers had succeeded in extricating. Thus at daybreak, the swimming expedition ended in the CP of the 5th Marines, with DeFazio reporting to Murray and Brush after seeing his commanding officer on the way to a field hospital. The crews and troops on the LVTs retained a confused impression of the night's events. Master Sergeant Edwin L. Knox, who crossed with the engineers in the second Amtrak, could not understand why the column withdrew. The vehicles were dispersed in every direction after some became stuck, and it was on his LVT that Captain Houghton received first aid. It was not officially established who gave the order for the return of the LVTs when they neared the north bank, if indeed such an order was ever given. But all participants agreed that it was for the best. Events had proved that too much dependence was placed in assumptions of little or no resistance, despite G2 warnings of an enemy buildup in the Huangju area. And even if Recon Company had landed, the task of taking three hills in a night attack without previous reconnaissance would probably have been too much for a unit of 126 men against an enemy estimated by Houghton at a battalion. Daylight Assault Crossing by 3-5 At dawn on the 20th, the command and staff of the 5th Marines rebounded from this preliminary reverse with vigor and firmness. General Craig, the ADC, summed up the viewpoint of Murray and his officers when he commented, The eyes of the world were upon us. It would have looked bad for the Marines, of all people, to reach a river and not be able to cross. It was decided at 0430 that the 3rd Battalion would make a daylight assault crossing just two hours later. The revised plan called for LVTs to cross at the Huangju site in waves of two to six vehicles. Troop units would be organized into boat teams, and the plan provided for a 15-minute artillery preparation by the 1st and 4th Battalions of the 11th Marines. Many of the Marine shells fell short, so that little benefit was derived from the barrage by the assault troops. On the other hand, enemy fire from Hill 125 was only too well placed. About 200 hits were taken by the first wave of Amtraks from 14.5mm anti-tank projectiles and small-caliber high-explosive shells, as well as machine gun bullets. The armor plate prevented any infantry losses, and only four casualties were suffered by the crews. Battalion objectives, according to the revised plan, were designated Abel, Baker, and Charlie, Hills 125, 51, and 95. Captain McMullen's item company landed at 0650 in the first wave, followed by Howe and George. While discharging troops, the LVTs were exposed to more machine gun and anti-tank fire, resulting in several infantry casualties. Item Company, it may be recalled, consisted of newcomers who had arrived at Pusan to make up 3rd Infantry Companies just before the brigade embarked for Inchon. 
Barring a few World War II men, these troops had known no combat experience before they hit Green Beach at Walmido. They acquitted themselves like veterans in the Han crossing, however, as platoon leaders organized them under fire after they piled out of the Amtraks. The only covering fires at first were provided by the 50 caliber machine guns of 1st Lieutenant Stanley H. Carpenter's platoon of Amtraks, which had taken the first wave across. Then four Corsairs of VMF-214 struck the enemy on Hill 125, while Captain Joseph N. Eyrick of the Amtraks led four of his vehicles eastward to a position where they could direct 50 caliber fire on the NKPA positions. Item Company's plan of attack called for a two-pronged assault on Hill 125, Objective Able, from the northwest by 1st Lieutenant William F. Sparks' 3rd Platoon on the right, attacking up the main spur paralleling the river, while 1st Lieutenant Elmer G. Peterson's 2nd Platoon attacked on the left riding a few hundred yards inland on LVTs. 2nd Lieutenant Roy E. Krieger's 1st Platoon was to remain on call in reserve. Item Company had it hot and heavy from the beginning. The two assault platoons overcame such difficulties as bogged down Amtraks, intermingled units, and bullet-swept open areas before getting in position to return the Communist fire. The first phase ended on a plateau about halfway up the hill when enemy machine guns cut down most of the mortar section before the Marines could gain a foothold. At this point it became necessary for the 3rd platoon to fall back and redeploy. Contact had been lost momentarily with Peterson's men, but after he appeared on the left, McMullen called up his reserve unit to pass through the 3rd platoon. Sparks having been wounded, 1st Lieutenant Wallace Williamson took command of his men, now reinforced by an engineer squad and troops from company headquarters. The revamped 3rd platoon was sent out to envelop the enemy left while Krieger hit the center and Peterson worked his way around the NKPA right. This time the plateau was carried in a single rush. But casualties had reduced the company to the point where another reorganization was necessary before attacking the military crest. Although Captain McMullen had been wounded, he remained in action to lead the final assault. The 1st and 3rd platoons were clawing their way upward when Peterson radioed from the left that he could see enemy soldiers in flight from the peak to the low ground north of the hill mass. One of the VMF-214 Corsairs also reported communists streaming down the eastern slopes with marine planes in hot pursuit. Thanks to their efforts, not many Korean Reds were left on the crest when the panting marines arrived to finish the job. More lucrative targets were presented by the foes racing down the eastern slopes. Marine rifles and bars cut down many of these figures when they attempted to change into civilian clothes to avoid capture. It was estimated that the enemy had 200 killed on Objective Able. The other two battalion objectives offered little or no resistance to troops who rode in column from the beaches on LVTs, Howe Company seized Hill 95, and George Company attacking Hill 51. Thus, at a total cost of 43 casualties, most of them in Item Company, the 3rd Battalion had secured its three objectives by 0940. Among the other results of the successful assault crossing was the salvaging of the two grounded LVTs, both of which had been in the enemy's field of fire. The equipment left on the north bank by the swimming team was also recovered, and PFC Lede showed up unharmed. 
After being assigned to an observation post, he had inadvertently been left behind as missing in action when the Reds opened fire. But he kept his head throughout his lonely night's vigil and was able to give a good report of enemy numbers and activities. At 10:00 on the 20th, the first wave of Amtraks crossed the river with troops of 2-5. This battalion had orders to remain in the LVTs while passing through 3-5 and continuing the attack. The scheme of maneuver called for a sharp turn to the right at Hill 51, and the next objectives, Dog and Easy, consisted of the high ground on either side of the Kaesong Seoul Railroad, about three miles east of Huangzhou. Company A of the 56th Amphibian Tractor Battalion, U.S. Army, was to follow with the 2nd Battalion of the KMC Regiment and DUKWs. These troops had a mission of providing security for the rear of the 5th Marines. The 1st Battalion of that regiment was alerted to be ready to cross the Han at 1330 and move into an assembly area near Hill 95, prepared to continue the attack towards Seoul. Once the plan had been told, it would be repetitive to describe a performance which put it into effect without incident. At 1400, the regimental CP displaced across the river to the vicinity of Sojong, about two miles northeast of the Huangzhou crossing site. Fifteen minutes later, the 2nd Battalion reported that it had secured objectives Dog and Easy. Troops of that unit had ridden the LVTs as far as Sojong, where they encountered a swamp and a bridge too small for anything larger than a jeep. The infantry proceeded on foot while a few LVTs and a platoon of tanks crossed over a railroad bridge. About 30 prisoners, believed to be the remnants of enemy forces on Hill 125, were taken on Objective Easy. They were hiding in a cave and surrendered after a couple of warning rounds fired by a platoon of the Army Amtrak troops supporting the battalion. Company D dug in on Objective Easy and Company E on Objective Dog while Company F covered the gap between. The 3rd Battalion went into an assembly area a mile north of Hill 95 and after 1-5 moved a company to Hill 125 to secure the landing area for the night, the 1st Marine Division had a firm bridgehead on the north bank of the Han. End of chapter 10, part 1. Read by Aaron Bennett.